It's great to see you guys this morning on this weekend before you have all your travels and everything. So my name's Tony. I have the privilege of serving here at Wellspring. Uh, Glad to have you. If you're new or visiting, we're glad to have you here. If you're uh, a kid and you'd like to hang out with some other kids, uh, Miss Jeannie is over there. Feel free to hang out with her. I think a lot of our kids are on vacation, having adventures. It's kind of fun. Sorry that you have to be here. Uh, who's, is anyone here visiting from another state, coming and adventuring with us? Awesome. Good to have you guys. Uh, so we're traveling through the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 11. Now, since chapter 7, uh, Jesus has primarily been in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles and then even for Hanukkah. And what we saw at the end of last chapter is he cra- uh, crossed over the Jordan back to where John was baptizing. His reception there is pretty good, but it's kind of a brief respite. As we begin John chapter 11, uh, Jesus gets word that his friend Lazarus is sick. This is how John paints the picture. It's John 11, 1 through 16. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one who you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they will see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he's asleep, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So then, no. Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. All right, so we're starting at the beginning, right? John says that Lazarus sends message that Lazarus is sick. Uh, He tells them that he is from Bethany. Now, Bethany is two miles outside of Jerusalem, a little image up here, give you a little bit of a sense. So you have the Dead Sea, the Jordan runs north from there. So Jesus is on the eastern side of the Jordan, and they're traveling over to Bethany, which is just two miles outside of Jerusalem, where Jesus was almost stoned a few verses back. This will become important, right? Because the disciples are going to be very anxious about this. Now, he John also tells us, right, that the two sisters are there, Martha and Mary. Now, what's interesting is John mentions that Mary anoints Jesus with oil, but that hasn't actually happened yet. It's sort of like an editorial note in the gospel because that will happen in chapter 12. It will happen in the next chapter. Uh, So he's sort of presuming knowledge here. So that this person is the one who will anoint his feet. 
Uh, and Lazarus is interestingly introduced as the one who Jesus loves. And this designation will be used a little bit throughout this chapter. Now, when Jesus finds out this information, he says this. He says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, this isn't sort of God's attempt at like trying to get extra attention for himself. Like pain and suffering exist so that God can somehow be highlighted. That's not what we're getting at here. In chapter 9, something similar happens. The disciples are walking by this guy who's born blind. And the disciples say, so whose sin caused this? This guy's or his parents? And Jesus is like, no, no, no. That's not how it works. It wasn't their sin. Actually, this is an opportunity for God to reveal his goodness in the world by healing this guy. And something similar is happening here. There is pain and suffering in the world. And he is saying, hey, you know what? Jesus is going to reveal who who he is, right? He will be glorified as the one who is good, beautiful, bringing compassion and love into the world, right? This is how he will be glorified, right? As the one who brings resurrection and life. Now, verses 5 and 6 can be a little confusing because John emphasizes that Lazarus, that Jesus loves Lazarus. He's like, oh, he really loves him. And then he says, and because of this, he waited two days. And you're like, what? That feels shady, right? Uh, So what's going on here? Well, two things we learn. Uh, In a few verses, we'll learn that uh, Lazarus, when Jesus arrives on the scene, he's been dead for four days. Meaning that if Jesus had left immediately, Lazarus was still dead. Right? So it wasn't like him showing up right away was somehow going to lead to his healing. He was already dead. But why does Jesus wait? And we don't exactly know. It could be that he's avoiding some conflict that's going on in that area. Remember, he was almost stoned there. Uh, So it's possible that's going on. And certainly by the disciples' response, they're nervous about persecution. They are nervous about what is going to happen to them. Right? Verse 8, Jesus is like, we're going. And they're like, please, no. Can we just wait a little bit? Didn't we just leave from there? Didn't you just barely escape being stoned? And then Jesus offers this simile, right, in verses 9 and 10. He's pretty straightforward. In the ancient world, they believe the the day was broken into two 12-hour chunks. And they're like, pretty simple, right? If you walk during the day, you have a less likelihood of tripping. Right? If you walk at night, you're more likely to stumble. This isn't like a, this isn't New York City where there's lights everywhere, right? This is the Judean wilderness. It is dark. If you walk at night, you will fall. Now, there's a couple things going on here. I think Jesus is saying, one, as he walks in the Father's light during the short time that he is on earth, right, he needs to make the most of that. So he needs to take advantage of the light he has, the protection of God before he leads to the cross. And then two, as the light of the world, the disciples should follow him, right, who is the light in the midst of the present darkness. Now, Thomas seems to get this. He seems to get, all right, Jesus, we're going to follow you, even though this seems scary. And he responds with, let us also go that we may die with him. This is Doubting Thomas, the guy in a little bit who we know as Doubting Thomas. Here, it's pretty courageous. He clearly thinks they are walking into imminent danger and imminent threat. And yet, they follow the light of the world to go to this place called Bethany because someone that Jesus loves is dead. Or they think is at least sick and dying. Which brings us to 17 to 27. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. 
Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. So Jesus arrives. Now, it's customary for you to put someone in a tomb in the first century immediately upon dying, right? They die that first day, you're going to be wrapped and put in a tomb if the tomb is available. So four days means that Lazarus died four days ago because he's been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany is so close to Jerusalem, people from Jerusalem are coming out to say, uh, bring comfort to Martha and to Mary. Now, in Greek... Uh, it says, the text actually reads that Mary sat in the house, right? In the English, it's like she stayed behind. What it really is saying is that sitting is connected to grieving and mourning. So what they're really saying is she continued to grieve and mourn in the house while Martha went out to greet Jesus. It's, she's not like mad and pouting uh, that Jesus waited two days, now, when we read Martha's comments, I think we also need to sort of be aware, be, be careful not to read too much into them. She begins in verse 21 with this if only statement, right? If only you had been there. Now, I don't think we want to read into this sort of bitterness and resentment, but maybe sadness, a sadness that if only Jesus had been there, maybe her brother would not have died. And I think we get this, the if only of human life, Right? We experience pain, suffering, disappointment, if only God had been there, right? And we can experience a sadness there, a disappointment. But it's balanced in this text because right after it, she assumes, right, that God will do whatever Jesus asks, right? So she's not just dominated by the if only and the disappointment. She's also sort of maintaining hope and faith that if Jesus asks still, that he will show up, that he will bring comfort, that he will bring help. But I think we need to be careful, though, to presume that she's assuming that Jesus is going to raise her brother from the tomb at this point. I don't think that is actually what is happening. Uh, And we'll, we'll see this in a second, but we'll also see in verse 39, this is farther into the text, Jesus is literally says to them, roll away the stone, and she's like horrified at it. She's like, don't do it. So she is not assuming that Jesus is going to literally raise her brother from the dead. And we know this because in verse 23, Jesus says, your brother will rise again, right? And her immediate response is this, I know he will rise again at the resurrection on the last day, right? Which would fit perfectly into a Jewish expectation uh, in the first century, right? The Sadducees are sort of the outliers, but most Jews in that day believed that God would come establish his kingdom on earth. And at that point, right, those who had lived and died would be resurrected for a threshold moment of whether they would participate in the kingdom or not. 
right? So she's operating in that mentality that God will come one day. And in that point, right, the resurrection will happen and her brother will be resurrected, right? This is sort of tapping in. Daniel 12 is a good example here. Daniel writes this, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will wake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who will rise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever, right? Notice the emphasis on sleep and rising, similar wordplay that Jesus is using here uh, in the 11th chapter of John. So this is clearly what Martha is referring to. Yes, Jesus, I know on the last day he will rise again. And this is the key moment, right? It's right here. Instead of agreeing with her, yes, Martha, on the last day your brother will rise, he says this, Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, if you've been with us in our journey through John, you've seen Jesus has consistently pointed to himself as the means to eternal life, right? Chapter 5, 8, and 10. He says, I am the means to eternal life. But he adds a little more texture here. It's interesting, right? Jesus affirms Martha's belief in the kingdom and the resurrection. But he helps her to see, right, that the resurrection and the life are not simply a doctrine, to believe in that are about the future. But actually the resurrection and the life are about a person that Jesus is the one through whom resurrection and life takes place. And this isn't simply, right, a future date, but by Jesus being with them, walking the streets with them, that the life and resurrection of the world is with them in that moment, at that time, in the first century, in Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem. And then he says to Martha, do you believe this? And Martha replies, verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is to come into the world. And this is Martha's confession. This is her statement of faith. That's pretty incredible, because just enter into her shoes a minute, right? So her brother has just died. She's in the shadow of, of grief. She's in this if only moment. If only you had been here, Jesus, to heal my brother, he would be alive. And yet, right, that grief, that sadness, that disappointment, the struggle of human life actually doesn't undermine her belief. In the midst of that moment, she is still able to see Jesus for who he is, right, as Lord, as the King of all creation. As Messiah, the anointed one, God sends into the world to rescue. As the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, one with God, sent into the world to be with them, right? The resurrection in the life, in the midst of pain, disappointment, and suffering. Right? In our culture, often when bad things happen, we question, we say, well, either God is not all-powerful or God is not good. She is able in the midst to hold on to the goodness and power of God in the midst of suffering, in the midst of a difficult season, a difficult four days. You know, she doesn't also just answer yes to Jesus. Like, do you believe this? Yes, you know. She actually adds, what does she believe? 
right? That he is the king, the Messiah, the son of God, the one coming into the world, right? Despite her present pain, she clings to present and future hope. Now that's John 11, 1 through 27. And then the question is, how does it translate into our context? Right? How does it translate into 21st century peninsula life, your daily grind, right, today? Now what we see in today's text, uh, two things I want to emphasize. One is sort of this concept of resurrection and life. And what does that look like? Right, Jesus clarifies that he is the resurrection and life of God, right? It's not simply a doctrine, a distant future, but that where he is, resurrection and life are. Yes, he will establish the kingdom at a future date. He will bring resurrection and life. But wherever he goes, resurrection and life follow. How does that relate to us? Well, right, Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, but he sends the Spirit to be with us, right? And when the Spirit is with us, the Spirit of Jesus is with us, right? The possibility of life and resurrection is with us. Therefore, it is with us today. So then what does that look like, right? We're not standing in front of a tomb wondering whether our brother is going to be raised from the dead. We're wondering like, so what does it look like to experience resurrection life in the midst of stuck places in our life? in the midst of fallow ground in our life, in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of hopelessness, what does it look like to experience the life and resurrection of Jesus? I had an experience this week that I think kind of speaks into it a little bit. So in our uh, Tuesday Well community, uh, once a month or so, we talk about like a current issue. Uh, So the group wanted to talk about mental health. So we talked about mental health and how that's affecting the United States and affects us personally. And we started with some stats, and there was one stat that stood out to me that sort of haunted me during the time. It was one in five Americans in any given year will struggle with mental illness. One in five. That means 25% of us, or 20% of us, during this year will have struggle with depression or anxiety or something else. And I remember sitting there, and I think a few of us felt it of like, man, this is really heavy. This is really hard. And there was a a woman at the table who offered this really beautiful word, her story. She talked about how she struggles with uh, severe depression and anxiety. And she talked about how she's grateful to God for the therapy she gets and the meds that help her with her brain chemistry. But she was also talking about how she notices this huge difference when she creates space for Jesus in the midst of her daily life, how much it helps her to experience life, how much it helps her to experience joy and peace and the goodness of God, that there's this buoyant buoyancy that's created in the midst of her struggle when she creates space for the life-giving power of God to work in her life, for Jesus to come near, right? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And when we make space for him, the resurrection and life-giving power of God draw near to us. And she was articulating this, that when she did that, she noticed a difference. So much so that her husband can like come up to her and be like, I'm just wondering, you know, have you been creating some space for Jesus in the last week or so? And she's like, no, or yes. And it's like clear to both of them 
whether she's been doing it, right? Because in the midst of her struggle, when she creates space, God shows up bringing life. You know, it's not moving a boulder. It's not raising the dead. But sometimes when you're in the midst of depression, when you're in the midst of anxiety, God to bring buoyancy and hope and peace is literally even more astounding, right, than God moving the boulder and raising Lazarus. I was trying to think of like, okay, so how does this translate? Like, what does this mean, right? If Jesus is the resurrection and life of God at work in the world, and when we make space for him, we make space for resurrection in the dead places in our life. We make space for God to move us out of stuck places. When we create space, God shows up. So what does that mean? Well, I think one of the things that means that's pretty clear to me is that if we don't make space, right? I feel like there's an invitation from the Spirit, from God, to, for us to carve out space in our days, for God to show up. And then there's a hope in that, that when we create space for God to speak, for God to show up, we sort of live with this hopeful expectation that God can move. Now I realize some of us have tried many, many times and it can feel like, well, I've tried that, you know? But we have to live, I think, with this expectation that God can surprise us around any corner. So I would invite you, if you're sort of not sure what to do or you're stuck, uh, one exercise that I think can be helpful is just go into a room, create some quiet, bring two chairs in there. You sit in one and imagine Jesus is sitting in the other. What would you say to him? In the midst of life's if only, in the midst of those moments when you're disappointed, in the midst of those moments when you're struggling, what is it that you would say to God? Start the conversation. God wants to bring life. God wants to bring resurrection power into the dead places in our lives, into those places of disappointment and hopelessness. Secondly, I would say one of the things that this person did uh, in our group that she shared about was, you know, what she does every day before she goes to bed is she actually doesn't just create space on a daily basis, but she actually creates rhythms to identify where God is bringing life and hope and peace and joy and the resurrection power of God is at work on a daily basis. So every night before she goes to bed, right, she writes in a journal, this is how I saw you, God, bringing life today. Right, and it's a way of marking and remembering and seeing, yes, God, you were at work. Right, so there's creating space and then identifying how God is at work. Because I think God wants to show us and prove to us that he as is at work in our lives. But sometimes we're so distracted by other things that we miss the ways that God is already at work. Or we're a little bit worried. It feels vulnerable to let him in so we don't let him into those places where we most need him. And he Wright has this great quote. He has this. If you have an if only in your heart, or mind right now, put yourself in Martha's shoes. Run off to meet Jesus. Tell him the problem. Ask him why he didn't come sooner, and then be prepared for a surprising response. Jesus will meet your problem with some new part of God's future that can and will burst into your present time, into the mess and grief, with good news, with hope, with new possibilities. Now, we don't know how God will work. Sometimes he'll just totally change things. 
Sometimes it will be this incremental process, but we have hope and faith that God will show up. Not always in the ways that we expect, not always in the ways that we want, but God does want to bring life into those stuck, messy places in our life and in this season. Which brings me to my second point, and it's just sort of framing it as if only and belief. Right? There's this real tension, I think, in today's text between disappointment, right? The if only if Jesus had been there, and this profound confession of faith that Martha articulates. Right? Martha does this incredible thing. She is able to believe in the midst of disappointment. Not because everything was great and rosy and she went on this awesome river cruise and everyone in her family was healthy. Right? In the midst of disappointment, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of that, she is still able to cling to belief and hope. One of the things we do in modern life is our sort of way of approaching, particularly suffering, is to ask why questions, right? That we ultimately can't answer. So we ask these questions, God, why did you allow this, right? This would be Martha asking Jesus, why did you allow my brother to die? Right, in the first century, though, that wasn't their primary question. Their primary question was a how question. In the midst of, right, suffering, evil, heartache are presumed to be a part of life. And the question is not why, it is how. How do we endure? How do we cling to belief in the midst of the messiness and brokenness of the world? Right, Martha is trying to figure out how does she cling? How does she hope? How does she believe? Now, the text doesn't explicitly outline the how. What we see is disappointment, heartache, and we see confession. We see articulation of hope and belief. I think if I was going to articulate two things, they would be this. One is, I think, one is contending. I think often, so contend is to struggle to surmount. I think sometimes in life, we assume that, like, belief should be easy. We think, oh, if we are just sort of passive in our faith, like, it will just sort of work. But inactive faith withers. In our culture, I mean, right now, so in Silicon Valley tomorrow, people will show up at their desks and their actual job title is attention architects. And what they are trying to do is figure out how to get your attention and my attention onto their screen, right? And almost all of our culture is operating this way, right? You have marketers trying to capture your desire and bring it their way. Right? We have screens that are trying to distract us. There's a thousand, a million ways that we can be diverted from focusing on Jesus. Right? We live in a privileged culture where we can buy things. We can do all kinds of cool things. And those things can distract our attention from the hope that is before us. And we need to be the kind of people that I think contend in the midst of heartache, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of distraction and diversion, we need to be the kind of people that contend for our faith. And I think one of the ways we do that is confession. And what I mean by that is not simply, uh, God, I am a sinner. You know, like certainly there's that element of confession. But what Martha articulates in this passage is a confession. Right? This is what she says. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. It's a confession of her faith. And actually, in the first century, Martha's confession is used at baptism. 
right? The person who was the, the catechumen, the person who was going to be baptized would say this. They would say Martha's confession as a way of saying, Jesus, I choose you. And throughout church history, right, the church has articulated creeds and confessions at times of distraction, at times of confusion to say, this is what we believe. This is what we are going to stand on. Even though there's all these truths out there pulling us in all these different directions, they move towards confession as a way of saying, this is what we are going to face or base our life on. Right? This is one of the reasons that we listen to music sort of worship music. Not simply because we like the tune, right? Because it orients our mind and our heart and our soul to what is true about God and true about ourselves, right? This is one of the reasons we turn to the scriptures. Not simply because we can learn cool history and we can like, you know, be really good at Bible quiz, right? We do it so that we are reminded on a regular basis of who God is, who we are, and what the world is like in a confusing, disappointing, and messy world. That we need those reminders. Right? This is why, like for me, music and scripture are huge. It's also why community is huge. Right? In the midst of the messiness of life, people surround us, they walk with us, they pray for us. I want to invite the worship team back up. And we're going we're gonna to move into, move into worship, to singing songs. Remember, this is a time when no matter what is going on, whether you're disappointed, whether you're struggling, this is one of the ways that we actually claim and lean into our faith. That we're reminded of what is true and good and beautiful amidst the if only of life. One of the things I want us to do as we enter into worship is actually say a confession together. This is one of the oldest confessions that we have as a sort of universal church. It's called the Nicene Creed. It was written in 325 in the midst of various ideas of who is Jesus? What is God? And they came up with a church that said, this is what is true. And this anchoring creed and confession and document has been true and embraced, right, by Orthodox faith for over 1,700 years. So as we enter into worship, let's say these words together to remind us what do we believe in a world full of distraction, in a world full of diversion, in a world full of suffering and difficulty. Let's stand on these words as we enter into worship to remind us of what is true in our faith. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again 
according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He has spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. God, these are things that the church has prayed and declared for nearly 1,700 years. These are beliefs that have anchored the church since the very beginning. And God, we declare these words today in your presence to say, these are true. These are good. And no matter the the swirl of voices in our heads, no matter the chorus of worries and anxieties, God, that these are true, that you are the giver of life, that you are the resurrection and hope of this world that one day you will come to judge the living and the dead, that you will establish your kingdom in this broken world bringing life. And that today, Jesus, we can stand in hope knowing that you want to bring resurrection power into the brokenness and death of our daily life. That you want to sow seeds of life. And God, we pray now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would come. God, we are broken, we are weak, we are Martha, waiting for you to show up. We are Mary, sitting in the house full of grief, wanting and hoping that you will pull up next to us and bring your comfort and bring your power. Come, God. Prove yourself faithful. Prove yourself big. Prove yourself glorious. The opportunity is here, God. Show us your mighty power. Show us your love. Amidst the if only that we all carry into this room today, help us to believe. Come, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Draw near. Come, Lord.